Well, welcome back to the Palm Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Uh, my name is Trey Hinkle, the senior pastor here at Palm Butte Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon. All right, well, we are continuing our sub-series. Uh, we have a main series in the Gospel of Luke, but this sub-series is um, teaching money matters. Uh, what we find in Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Luke in regards to finances and resources and good stewardship of those uh, resources. Um, today, we're talking about being under new management or new ownership, sorry. Perhaps you've gone into a place of business, one that you've been familiar with with a, a long period of time, but you, you walk in and all of a sudden, this time as you walk in, things are different. Uh, something's changed. The carpet's new, maybe. The layout's different. If it's a restaurant, the menu has changed, both in, in what it looks like and what it's offering. Uh, maybe uh, the server is new, the, the greeter, the staff, the decor. But but you just know the whole place has changed. And then you see the little sign. You realize everything's different because there's been a change in ownership. So today is our second week in looking at this series called Money Matters, finding the teaching from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke in regards to wisely handling resources that God has given to us. And last week, we commented on how God really does care about how we view money, how we value money, how we use the resources that he has granted to us. See, God gave us resources for a few things. We saw last week to enjoy, uh, to take care of our families with, and then to share when when needs uh, arise and, and uh, to uh, uh, be able to help those needs. Now, last week was all about the overview. This week, we're going to be looking at some of the biblical principles that must happen if we're going to change our attitude, our choices, and our decisions about what we have um, and, and bring them more into alignment with what the Bible teaches. The title of the message, Under New Ownership, actually comes from the events that lead Jesus to tell a story about wise management of our resources. Now, the events is, you know, the story of these events, if you've gone to Sunday school, you, you probably uh, remember. Um, it's a story of a tax collector who was short in stature. His name was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, we would sing in Sunday school. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Now, back in the day, by the way, and you probably know this if you've been to, to church or have uh, heard sermons or anything like that, tax collectors weren't very popular people. And, and I get it. They're, they still aren't popular people, right? If we can uh, get rid of the IRS, a lot of people would be very, very happy, I'm sure. But tax collectors in Jesus' day weren't hated merely because they were the middleman who compelled folks to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's but because they were seen as, well, as turncoats, as betrayers. They had betrayed their fellow Jews in order to go work for the oppressive Roman government. And then to make matters worse, the way that they would get paid by the Roman government was uh, they were allowed to add to what was collected. They, they could add in their own fees to the tax that was owed. And so they would, you know, you, you might get your bill and you owed the government a certain amount, but there was an additional fee on top of that so that your fellow Jew, who is now working for the enemy, can actually get paid. And so 
they were shunned. And uh, because they were shunned from society, uh, many tax collectors would actually, because they were hurt, injured, insulted, they would actually uh, add more just to get back at the people. They, they would add a hefty fee for themselves. Uh, they lived very, very well as a, as a result of that. But I, I think, well, okay, great, you're living high on the hog, but at what cost? You know, you're now, you don't have a people anymore. You don't have friends anymore. That's a very tenuous position, I would, I would imagine. So we're in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to see the, uh, we're going to read the story in its entirety, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into, into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when the people saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to, in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I now give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So this chapter in Luke's gospel begins by showing quite the turnaround in this man's life. Zacchaeus goes from someone who only was concerned about his own comfort into a very generous person who, who's trying to make amends for any wrong that he might have committed against his own people. And notice Jesus says that these generous actions taken by Zac in verse 8, they actually indicate that he has been saved. They are indications of salvation. He says today in verse 9, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now, a couple of cool things to observe here. First, there, there's a passage where Jesus tells his disciples to go preach the gospel of the kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel only, okay? If you take a look at the history that the Old Testament presents, you'll find that the relationship between God and his people, Israel, was one of the most whirlwind relationships, on again, off again, on again, off again, that you could ever find. One minute, the Jews are loving God, they're following him, he's their savior, their deliverer, and then the next day, they've abandoned their devotion to Yehovah to hedge their bets and to follow false gods of the Canaanites. Now, by the time Jesus rolls on the scene, things are so bad in this relationship between God and his people that Jesus says, man, these people are lost, and it's my job to bring them back around into the fold into the kingdom. That's why he told his disciples to go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And by the way, here in Luke 19, he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. Okay. So Zacchaeus is a perfect example of somebody who should have known better, somebody who would have known the law, who would have known what God had set out to be right and wrong, but who, for whatever reason, didn't live the way that God had called him to live. He was truly lost. And that's why Jesus said, I have to go to your home. See, and as Jesus began to create this relationship, this new relationship with Zacchaeus, something happened to Zac. He was changed. 
and his determination then to live differently, to live generously, willing to not just enjoy the resources God allowed him to have, but to take care of his family and to share, to look after the needs of other people. Jesus says that's evidence, that's proof that he is now a true son of Abraham. And that, by the way, brings us to the second cool thing that I see. Because elsewhere, Jesus has accused the Jewish leaders of, how would you say, questionable spiritual parentage. What do I mean? Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus confronts the religious leaders and he says to them, I know that you think you're offspring of Abraham through your bloodline, and yet you're seeking to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do what you've heard from your father. And they said, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Nope. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. In other words, if they had been acting out of faith, in the same faith that Abraham had, and Abraham was their bloodline ancestor, then that would be evidence that they were true sons of Abraham. But unfortunately, because they were not walking in faith, they did not believe and trust Jesus. They were betraying their true heritage. And it wasn't, uh, their lineage does not trace them back to Abraham. They, They trace their heritage back to the devil. Jesus calls them actually sons of the devil. Not a great popular thing to say, by the way. Did not win him friends on that occasion. But here in Luke chapter 19, as Zacchaeus is willing to change his behavior, he is proving that he really is a son of Abraham, not just in bloodline, but in by way of faith, by not just saying that you believe because the demons believe in God and they shudder. That's what the book of James tells us. But because of their belief, because of his belief, he is proven that he's a son of faith, a son of Abraham in that faith, because he has changed what he does. He's changed his attitude. He's changed his behavior. He's changed his opinions. Okay. Now, being a child of faith is really what's at the heart of what we're discussing here with with the resources that God has given to us. Uh, What's at the heart of money matters is being a child of faith, because ultimately God has asked his children to view and to treat and to use money in step with certain truths. And either we are trusting that his ways are best or we're we're not. See, we either obey in faith, and it is actually seen in how we live, the the choices we make, or we, uh, we, we turn away from faith as we follow our own feelings, our own ideas, our own opinions. Zach was willing to trust God, giving up to half of his possessions and to rectify any deceitful practice that he had been engaged in by returning four times what he might have swindled folks out in collecting their taxes. And so just by looking at the change in his behavior and his attitude, the change in the decor of his life's business, if you will, what what does that tell us? There's been a change of ownership. There's been a change of ownership in his life. He now looks at whatever resource he has in an entirely different way because there's been a change in ownership. So this story is really then the preamble to this point that Jesus is going to make to his disciples, beginning in verse 11. Now let's read this part and then we'll break it down. As the people heard these things, he proceeded 
to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and, gave, and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Well, he said to him, I, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten minas. Well, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, that's, that's a, again, a lot to unpack. But to understand this parable, it's good to know who is who in the story. You know, there's this is a representational story. It's a parable, right? So obviously, when you look at this, Jesus is the master who is going to inherit a kingdom. Obviously, that's the kingdom of God that we're living in right now, as well as what we will be able to experience in the afterlife. But then there's these servants that he has, which are divided into two subgroups. There were the wise investors, and then there's that one worthless idler, right, who just put it in a handkerchief and did nothing with it. And then there is these citizens who don't even want the man to be king. And these rebels, which that's what they are, rebels, are dealt with after the master returns by being slaughtered. <laughs> now, this morning, I, I, out of all of that, I really want to focus in on those servants, those two types of servants, the, the, the one that uh, was faithful and the one that was idle. Uh, some of the, and we'll probably throw in some of the rebels thrown in for good measure as we study this parable. But ultimately, it's, it's really about the servants because they represent those of us who live in God's kingdom. Now, for the rest of this message, I must say this. I am going to proceed as if I am talking to people who have already made the decision to be a part of God's family, to be his servants. I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that I'm going to be talking to followers of Jesus who live in the kingdom of God. Because the servants in this story, that's who they are. They are servants of Christ. And until you've made that commitment, then anything that I'm going to say, unless you've already said, I'm going to serve him, I'm going to sit at his feet, then anything I say won't make sense to you. But if you are a true believer, a follower, a disciple, then this is where we begin to connect the dots. Because as servants of Jesus in God's kingdom, you and I make decisions all day long, right? 
Sometimes we make really good decisions. Other times, eh, not so good. One time, I was in my ex-roommate's um, dorm room, and he had purchased a, a new bowling ball. And I said, here, toss it here. And he, he laughed because he said, no, I'm not going to toss it to you because he, he didn't trust that I was going to actually catch it. And I said, dude, I would have caught it. And then to prove that I would have caught it, I leaned back on the bed and with the, with the bowling ball above my face, now I'm facing and I'm looking at the ceiling and I got this bowling ball right here in my hands and I toss it up and I catch it. And it's right over my face, but I catch it, right? I wanted to show him I was going to be able to catch it. But the momentum of the bowling ball did not enter into my brain. And so, yes, I caught it, but the force of, of the falling bowling ball in my hands pushed my hands down past where my face was. And so I literally knocked myself silly with a bowling ball all by myself. Sometimes we don't make such good decisions, right? But most of us, as we grow more mature, we try to limit our poor decision-making, keeping that to a minimum because, you know, we don't want to look like dummies. We, 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 don't, look like, we, we don't want to look like people who just can't get it right. That there, there's in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 6, a, a very interesting passage of, of wisdom. Solomon says, the, the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And he grants a treasure of common sense to the honest. He's a shield to those who walk with integrity. He guards the path of the just and protects those who are faithful to him. Then you will understand what is right, just, and fair, and you will find the right way to go. Or you will find the best way to make decisions. See, when you make decisions, there are two ways you can go. You can rely on your own understanding your own experience, your own personality, or you can trust in the wisdom found in God's word. So to that end, I think one of the most important verses to set our lives by, the foundation of every decision that we would make, should come from this, this foundation, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Some of you have memorized this. If you have not memorized this, this would be a great, uh, a great passage to memorize. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. See, as we make decisions, especially in light of this sermon series, the decisions about our resources, if we rely on ourselves only, our own insight, our own understanding, which by the way is limited, then because it's limited, we're going to constantly bump up against struggles. Why? Because we can't see the entire picture. We can see maybe right in front of us. We might even be able to train ourselves to see a little bit far into the future. But man, we can't see the whole picture at all. So it's easy then to let our decision making be driven by things like discontentment or fear. And by the way, discontentment is, is a fear. It's a fear of not having what others have. Discontentment means uh, I'm fearing that I, I'm not getting everything out of life that I should have. I think most of the time when we are making decisions on our own, it's, it's based on things like fear. But fear is a rotten thing to actually drive our decisions. Here's the good news. 
this is the thing that should encourage us and bring us relief from our fears. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, but grace my fears relieved. Here it is. This should encourage us. God, who is the creator of all things, who knows all things, who can do all things, is willing to help us. He gave us his word. He gave us his wisdom. He desires to help us make the best decisions. But folks, that only goes so far. That only happens when you and I stop trying to be in control and we actually look to God to be the one who helps us make decisions. We need to stop leaning on our own understanding, as the proverb says there in Proverbs 3. See, instead, we're told to acknowledge him, to trust him and to acknowledge him, to acknowledge his wisdom, to acknowledge his lordship in all of our ways. That means that there's no aspect of the believer's life that God shouldn't be a part of. There's no aspect of your life, by the way, that God doesn't care about. Okay? He cares about every aspect of your life. And in every aspect of your life, he deserves to have full sway. And I love that. I love that word, full sway. It's found in one of the old hymns that we sing uh, at, at occasions. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. See, it's only when we learn to sit at Jesus's feet, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, and listen to him and learn from him and then obey that something amazing happens. We give him absolute sway. That means we are gentle. That means when he moves us one way, we go that way. We don't fight against him. Okay. But when we do that, something amazing happens, according to Proverbs 3, 6. He makes our paths straight. And boy, I don't know about you, but if I had my my say, my my druthers, if, if I could say what I would prefer, my preference, I would want my my financial life to be straight, not crooked and treacherous and perilous to walk down. But that's all based on then will I trust God? See, the, the concept of trust is at the heart of this concept, the, the, the issue of faith. Trust and faith in the Bible are the exact same words. But in our culture, faith sometimes just has come to mean a, a, a mental assent. But something that we believe in, but not really do anything about. So people say that they believe in God. They say that they have faith in Jesus. But what does that mean to them? In, in many, many believers' life, I think it's totally different than what the authors of the Bible meant when they talked about faith. For example, if, if you and I were in a restaurant and somebody came up to us and said, there is a bomb in this restaurant that is going to go off in five minutes. And then walks away, and leaves. Now, if you and I believed that, then you can imagine uh, what the next five minutes are going to look like in your life. If you truly believe that there was going to be a bomb that went off in a restaurant that you and I were sitting in in five minutes, and you really believed it, you wouldn't just sit around. You wouldn't just say, oh yeah, okay, I believe that there's a bomb. No, you would get up and you would leave. You, you, you might take as many people as you possibly could. You might warn them. You might get them out of there. But at the very least, you and I would leave if we believed, truly believed that there's a bomb that's going to go on off in five minutes. 
Folks, that's what the Bible authors meant whenever they talked about belief. It's not just a mental assent, but it is actually a, a belief that produces action. That's what faith is. It's belief that actually changes how you behave. So what is an area of your life? What, what, what do you think is an area of life that more than almost anything else, people have a hard time trusting to somebody else's wisdom? <laughs> well, yeah, okay, well, let me ask it in another way. How can somebody demonstrate their faith in God in a very real, very practical way? Now, I bet you your answer is money, money. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's one of those. I mean, you could definitely make a case that money is one of those things where I can see if you're really, truly trusting God by the way that you're handling your money. But can I also tell the level of your, of your faith based on your ministry uh, that you're involved with or, or the way you're raising your kids or the way that you're treating your spouse? Um, how much you are committed to actually uh, being with other believers in, in, in assembling once a week? Maybe uh, the time you spend in personal Bible devotions? Now, I can get a fairly good picture of your faith the level of your faith. But there's one decision that actually incorporates all of these. It's like the umbrella thing that all of these come into, and even more than what we talked about. And it is, this is the practical way to demonstrate your faith in God. It's in regards to who owns you, who owns your life, who owns your stuff. Now, we, we looked at Psalm 24 last week, where it says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Um, uh, the, the world and all who live in it. Now, I want to add to that um, a passage found in the Old Testament prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verse 8, where God says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And even in the New Testament, we, we see in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Are You are not your own. He says, you were bought at a price. So everything that we have, everything we are as his disciples belongs to him. And in many areas of our lives, we're okay with that. We understand that. I think we actually understand this when we're in trouble. It kind of like when all of a sudden, you know, if you're married and you've got kids and one of your kids does something that you're kind of embarrassed about, you say, well, that's not my kid. That's my wife's kid. Honey, your child did this today. And when things go wrong, it's not on you. You need help. Then the, at those times, sure, we'll say, Jesus, take the wheel, right? But in my experience, the toughest area of life to let God have ownership is in the way that we treat our resources. See, when it comes to our money, we believe, well, that's personal. We need to keep tight control on what comes in and what goes out. We believe that we get to set the standard of living where we live, how we live, what we live in, what we drive, what we wear. It's, it's, it's almost as if our attitude is, okay, God, you can own, oh, I'll let you own the 72 Pinto. Um, I'm going to keep the Escalade, though. Now, some of you may get a, a bit cynical and say, well, I, I guess God doesn't want me to have anything then. I, I don't have anything if it's all God's. Well, I've got good news for you cynics. God says, yes, it's all his. But, you know, God is not like us. He doesn't hoard things because of fear, right? In fact, it says in the Bible that though he owns everything, he actually chooses to entrust all things 
to our care in order for us to manage. Genesis 1.26, God is talking. He says, let's make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so that they can be responsible for the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and the cattle and, yes, the earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. That comes from the message, by the way. It's a, that's, a, that's an interesting, it's a very clarifying uh, translation of Genesis 1.26. It says that God has made us, yes, in his image, reflecting his very person. Why? So that we could actually share in the management of his creation. We would have that responsibility to, to manage. So, so what does it mean to manage something? Well, it doesn't mean that you own it, but it means that you are now responsible for something. It's not yours, but you are responsible to make decisions about those things that are in line with what the owner cares about, how the owner feels about things, what his heart is, what his mindset is, what his purpose is. A manager's role is to know the owner so well, or at least to know the owner's will and heart and desires so well that they are able to make the decisions to help meet the goals and the purposes of what the owner has in store for his resources. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells us a person who is put in charge as a manager obviously must be faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to the goals and the purposes of the owner. Otherwise, he's going to get kicked out. Not going to be the manager anymore. The resources are going to be taken away from him. See, God has entrusted us with something very important. And he wants us to prove ourselves faithful in that trust. So if we just always lean on our own understanding, leaning to, into our own desires, our own fears, then rather than being good managers, we actually become hoarders. Uh, we, we forget that we're not the owners and we start making decisions that aren't in line with the owner's heart. Therefore, we mismanage the resources and we get into a problem. But here's the fact. Here's the fact of the matter. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are under new ownership, just like Zacchaeus. Just like Zacchaeus, when Jesus came into his life, he became somebody under new ownership. And instead of owning all of the stuff that he had, Zacchaeus realized he was just supposed to be the manager. So church, listen to this. The most important decision that we can make is who is the owner? Because if you continue to think that you're the owner, even as a follower of Jesus, your, your mind is going to be closed, your heart is going to be closed, and ultimately your hand is going to be closed so tightly that you're going to miss out on the life that God wanted you to live. And that life that God wanted you to live is not just about integrity or morality. It's, it's about understanding the blessing that it is to be able to help other people when you have resources and they don't. By living that way, you're going to miss the thrill of being able to, to get an attaboy for managing God's resources in a way that's wise and fruitful. Just like the, these, these servants that received the mina, the ones that did well, they got the attaboy. And they got more responsibilities, too. See, there's a satisfaction of making the right investment in two ways. When you make the right investment, number one, you're going to get a satisfaction in actually making that investment, being excited about 
what that might possibly mean for the future, right? But then it's satisfying because if you've made the right investment, there's going to be a reward at the end of that investment. You actually get to see a return on your investment. You actually get to see the harvest played out of everything that you sowed. So here's the bottom line for disciples of Jesus, those who position themselves at his feet. Are we willing to trust enough to make the choice that God is the owner of everything we have? And that you then have been offered a great position. It's an amazing position. You've been offered the position of manager of those resources. Are you willing to make that choice? Because here's the reality. If you don't choose that role, then most likely, if you stay in the mindset that you are the owner, you're going to find out one of these days, one of these years down the road, that you're spending most, if not all, of your life chasing after something that really doesn't satisfy us to our deep spirits. But if you do choose the role of manager, the Bible promises that there is great excitement and joy in store for you. So what's the next step? Well, if you've given yourself to be under new ownership, the next step is to accept that position of manager. And it's a, it's a job. It's a huge job because you're managing not just finances, but you're managing family, you're managing work ethic, you're managing time, right? There, there, there's, there's management of the earth, um, the circle of influence that God has given you. There's the management of your health, your personal, physical, mental, emotional health. The health of your marriage is also on the line. And then, of course, your relationship with the owner himself. See, this is not just a trivial weekend job. So why do we do that? Why do we make the job just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning? Owner to manager. From owner to manager. Leave ownership, embrace managership. Be under new ownership. That's one of the most important decisions that you will ever make as a follower of Jesus. And that's all about shifting from leaning on your own understanding to the acknowledgement of God in all your ways so that he will make your paths straight. Well, that's the message for this week. I'm glad you uh, tuned in. Thank you, Lisa Welly, uh, my executive producer. Thank you, uh, Steve Pittman, for just keeping us always up to date on our technology. And uh, thank you again for your time and listening to this. If you're ever in our area, we would love to have you uh, come and be a part of our services on the weekend. Uh, you can always find us on the web at uh, www.powellbuttechurch.com. All right, we'll see you next time.